Hello and welcome to the Sam Knows Podcast. I'm Barry Collins. In February 2007, a young senator from Illinois told America he wanted to be president and declared this. So let us begin. Let us begin this hard work together. Let us transform this nation. Let us be the generation that reshapes our economy to compete in the digital age. Let's set high standards for our schools and give them the resources they need to succeed. Let's recruit a new army of teachers and give them better pay and more support in exchange for more accountability. Let's make college more affordable. And let's invest in scientific research. And let's lay down broadband lines through the heart of inner cities and rural towns all across America. We can do that. Two years later, having become the 44th President of the United States, the newly elected Barack Obama promised to redefine broadband with speeds demanded by 21st century and business communications. There was just one problem. Nobody was really sure how fast existing networks were. Enter Sam Knows, who after successfully powering a project to measure true broadband speeds in the UK with Ofcom, headed to America to do the same with the US Federal Communications Commission. In this first episode of a two-part podcast, I'm going to talk with Walter Johnson, who was one of the chief architects of the FCC's Measuring Broadband America program, and who gives us a fascinating insider's account of how the program got going and the challenges that it had to overcome. Then, in the second episode, I'm going to be chatting with Sam Lowe's Director of Government Programs, Roxanne Robinson, who will tell us about how Measuring Broadband America has changed over the past decade and where it's heading next. So, Walter, can you tell us how Measuring Broadband America got going? What what was the driving force behind that project? We, we take broadband for granted now, but uh, when this program began, which was uh, the first report was issued in 2011, and it began actually, the fundaments began about 2009, we were at one of those technology tipping points. Um, I had uh, uh, come to the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, um, in 2004, after spending most of my life in private industry working for AT&T, Bell Labs, Verizon, I did two startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I can tell you that uh, the powers that be, not only in government, but in industry, had been late to realize the full impact that broadband was going to have. But mm-hmm. by uh, 2009, it was clear that we were, things were going to change. Um, and uh, there was a change of administration and um, a, a, the, a new chairman came into the Federal Communications Commission, uh, Julian Janikowski. And um, he started with uh, developing what became known as the National Broadband Plan for the first 90 days of the FCC. Uh, he brought in a bunch of outside consultants. They worked with FCC staff. More importantly, we pulled in everybody from industry, consumer, technology, service providers, big and small, to talk about broadband. It, I, I've done many strategic plans in my life. Most of them wind up in a dustbin. Um, this one, by my reckoning, was very well done and served as a blueprint for what the FCC was going to do over the next several years. Mm-hmm. One element of that was to learn more about broadband, was to study broadband. 
And, and to give credit to both Ofcom, which is the UK regulatory authority, as well as Sam Nose, I think they were influenced by the Sam Nose Ofcom study. So mm-hmm. there was provision in the plan and authority from FCC to go ahead and do a broadband measurement plan, uh, broadly mo- modeled on the Sam Nose plan. And in fact, the RFP that was put out, strangely enough, Sam Nose won. Uh, uh, they, and to be fair, they had a very competitively priced bid, but they were also very competent. Mm-hmm. Um, things went off the rails after that. Uh, first of all, I wasn't involved in that phase of the program, but I'm in the engineering. I was in the engineering division of the federal communications division. I'm, I'm retired now. And, um, my group supported other what, what are called bureaus within the FCC. The bureaus have policy responsibility for different segments of communications. And the broadband plan was, uh, the measurement plan was under the auspices of the Consumer Bureau. Uh, but they really didn't have the type of staff necessary to run that program. So uh, one day I called into my boss's office, a very nice guy named Julie Knapp, and he said, um, we've got a request for help from the Consumer Bureau. I'd like you to go over there and help them out, which is a typical thing we do. Mm-hmm. So I took one of my staff, uh, a guy named James Miller. We went over there. Um, we eventually wound up holding the bag because by the time that we vol- got volunteered, um, the Consumer Bureau thought their job had been done and they vacated. And in fact, I remember telling my boss, I said, it's funny, we walked into the room and then everybody left. And we were the only ones standing there with stuck with the program. Um, and then a really strange thing happened. Uh, we, FCC operates in a mode of transparency. So before we do anything, we announce it to the public. And industry got very upset, uh, which didn't happen apparently, or maybe did, wasn't considered in, in the UK. But they came mm-hmm. in very strongly and said, you can't do this. You have to allow us to participate. What were they upset about? Uh, paranoia. They were concerned that a government regulatory agency would do something that they weren't aware of, and it might have negative effect on their business. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they were very uh, concerned about that. Um, and uh, we had actually a very heated meeting on this topic. Uh, I, they were heated. I got heated. It got very contentious. And then things calmed down. I started thinking about it, and I said, you know, this might not be a bad idea. To be, because if we could engage them in our work, the ability to get our work accepted, I thought would be much easier. So I actually went back to our management and said, look, this is what's happening. You ought to be aware of this. They want in on this study. Um, but my caution was, this is going to make it much more complex. We we're going to do this ourselves. We we're going to do this in about six months worth of time. Now we've got to work with 13 companies and their lawyers and this is not going to be the simple project, you know, you outlined to us. And they mm-hmm. were okay with that. To be fair to them, I said, fine, okay, go ahead and do it. So we started working with them and we changed the context of the program. It was going to be a Sam Nose study. Now it became a joint federal industry study. Uh, we made sure there was, everybody knew there was going to be transparent. Anything that we developed, we'd make available to the public. Not only the report, but the data we collected as well. We said this is going to be a data, uh, an open data project in every aspect. Uh, we did outreach to academics and brought them into the into the process. So we took the Sam Nose methodology as a template, but we started mm-hmm. going through it test by test, study by study, and we had industry vet it. 
We had uh, academics look at it. Uh, there were suggestions made. So what we wound up was sort of a Sam knows FCC industry study. Um, the uh, industry wanted to test the white boxes themselves. We said, fine, we'll give you white boxes. And everybody got as many white boxes as they wanted. Um, then later on, they got concerned that we would measure things that was different from their network. So they, mm -hmm. they, they had, we had a meeting. They said, look, we can't allow you to just measure things without our verifying it. And we want to test the certain, you know, you know how the, the Sam knows project works is that you have a white box in somebody's house, but it's testing against a point in a network with a server, basically a high power PC that's able to measure the, do all the measurement tests. And I said, we want to test those servers in our network. And we said, okay, that's fine with us. But, and, but, you know, you have to pay for the, we can't afford the equipment, but, but these are basically glorified PCs. So it's from a company that's making billions of dollars a year. It's not a huge investment. And, yep. and they took those first into their laboratories and then they put them into their network. Um, and where we had like 16 servers to measure across the nation, they actually installed uh, close to a hundred of their own. Um, Was that so they got the, the servers closer to? Ah, well, they did, they did, they put them everywhere. They put them close to where we had our servers. They also put them in points in a network that we couldn't touch uh, mm -hmm. Because they really didn't, they really didn't understand. Uh, we were looking at things that they had never looked at before, and so they weren't sure what they were going to find. So um, the ones that had this engineering staff to support it, they went all over the map in terms of measuring things. Others just mimic what we were doing. One or two uh, probably didn't. I'm trying to remember now, might not have done anything at all. But but end of the day, they had four or five times as many servers as we did, and. We didn't know at the time, but that turned out to be a valuable resource because part of the part of the requirement in testing this, and it's very complex, is that you look for a, a period in time in which the network across thirteen companies is stable. I, again, these companies are highly competitive; they don't want mm -hmm. a company saying, "Gee, I had a bad day; I want to do it over again." Uh, they wanted everybody to be measured fairly. So the principle that people accepted is we'll apply the same standard to everybody. What mm -hmm. they wouldn't accept is we're going to make an exception. So the exception rule was thrown out. Uh, nobody wanted exceptions, but it meant that you needed to verify that a nationwide network was operating, if not optimally, uh, nominally. And uh, their servers have always sir, uh, provided a capability to do an independent reference check on whether or not the network is performing adequately. So if you look in, the, and we've documented all these policies and requirements on our website, if you look at our website, the FCC website, it basically says that um, we can only do measurements when the network is performing external to, to the ISP. The ISP's network mm -hmm. can be down but if the rest of the network is up, that's on them. So we, you, you're responsible for your own network. You're not responsible for faults outside your network was the principle. And, and that provided a very valuable reference for us. Uh, but not all of the, the web providers decided to take part in the end. So wh why do you think that was? This became an advertising uh, issue. Uh, we put out our first report in September uh, 2011. And I remember one or two days after we put out the report, I was watching TV and I saw a Verizon ad where they actually used a chart from our study advertising the quality of their network. Uh, 
So it became, at least with those 13 companies, and those 13 companies support 80% of our customer base. In fact, the U.S. is very strange. We, we have 80% of, over 80% of the market supported by roughly, it varies because they do all these mergers, but let's say nominally 12 to 13 companies. We uh-huh. literally have 3,000 other ISPs supporting the remaining 15%. And, and that number has held for 20 years. That when, If you go back in the records in 2000 and you asked how many ISPs there were, uh, there were about 3,000 ISPs. That number hasn't changed. The consolidation industry has changed. So mm-hmm. 20 years ago, the market was spread across, was more spread across those companies. Today, it's highly concentrated among the leading ISPs and the remaining ones are typically in the suburban and rural areas. So- there was an onus to participate or else your competitors could use that against you. Um, there was also some political pressure, obviously, in doing that. Um, and it's been a voluntary program. The participation is voluntary on the part of the carriers. We don't mandate it. More or less, the uh, companies have seen value in participating. I can think of one instance where a company pulled out wasn't a terrestrial company. It was a satellite company because mm-hmm. they had been having some problems and they didn't want to showcase them. Do you think it should be mandated? That's a loaded term in the United States, especially in the pandemic. <laughs> um, I don't think we it would be mandated at any time in the near future with with a limited exception. And a limited exception is FCC uh, uh, invests about 6 to $8 billion yearly in deploying broadband in areas that are underserved. More recently, in the last five or six years, there's been a proviso that the companies have to demonstrate that they're meeting the objectives that were outlined in their bid to get that money. In other words, a company would come in and say, in uh, you know five years, we're going to have 100 megabit capability or 20 megabit capability. Uh, we're going to serve so many customers with this capability. So more and more, the FCC has been requiring you've got to show some empirical proof that you're actually providing a quality service, meeting the performance data. And and in that instance, it's been mandated. I, mm-hmm. I think in the foreseeable future, three or four years, certainly, I don't see any potential for uh, mandating um, uh, in the urban areas. How do you think the U.S. broadband landscape has changed as a result of measuring broadband America? Uh, it, it's had some interesting results. Um, uh, the program was started, and, and I think one of the reasons the paranoid just just because you're paranoid doesn't you know the saying goes doesn't mean you're crazy. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of contention, and uh, when we started this program, between and suspicion about what ISPs were actually delivering. Um, some of that was created by the Ofcom study, which showed that um, using DSL, which is this variable speeds, you know, DSL is, is a lottery. Okay, if you're close yep. to a central office, you've got great service. If you're far away from a service point or central office, your speed declines. And the carriers in the EU were overpromising; they were giving you an up to speed. Well, you can have up to, you know, it's like saying you can win the lottery. It doesn't mean you're gonna yep. win the lottery. So the difference between can and will is is a big difference. So you had this image that Europe was, the ISPs were uh, not being transparent to the consumers. And in addition to that, in the US, uh, we had consumer groups, and I won't go through naming them, that were contending that the ISPs were uh, ripping the consumer off. 
And you also had a study from a consultancy which showed that broadband performance was not as claimed. So our management uh, was primed to believe that the ISPs were falsely advertising. Mm-hmm. Now, the study that we did showed that more or less uh, they were telling the truth. Uh, I won't mm-hmm. go into the details. It'd be too long to explain. But more or less, they were they were honestly advertising what they were delivering. Um, our management accepted that, but uh, it was a surprising result. Um, the other th- things that happened was that the following year, and, and the study was supposed to be a one-year study, but at the last minute, and I mean the last minute, uh, our management decided they wanted to continue the study. So we did a, a study for the next year. And what we discovered the next year was very interesting. One is, even though they were mostly telling the truth, uh, the next year they were more mostly telling the truth. So <laughs> so they cleaned up their act where they were sort of being a little bit optimistic. They, they came much, even the DSL services were now much more on target. They were within 80% of the promised rate, sometimes much better than 80% of the promised rate. Now, mm-hmm. that's not a technical achievement. It's just changing your advertising. Okay, but the other thing that interested us was that the spread between the worst uh, uh, performer and best performer had narrowed. The divergence between best and worst had gotten smaller. And and what occurred to us, and it's only a theory, is that for the first time, ISPs could look at the performance of other ISPs and judge how well from an engineering perspective that they were doing. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. And um, the really low performers realized that they were just doing lousy engineering. And um, they, some of them obviously cleaned up their act and they improved their performance. So the study not only uh, helped get better and more transparent advertising, but delivered a better product to the consumer through a spurring competition. You touched on this before, but uh, in, in the, you know, you learned from the Ofcom and Sernos experience uh, here in the UK. How do you think over time, when we see more of these projects uh, being launched across the world, uh, do, do you learn from uh, other countries and have, have they learned from, from what you did? Uh, we, we've hosted uh, a, a number of talks with companies that, with regulatory agencies that Sam knows is working with. And we've been as interested in return, um, in at least from an engineering perspective, in terms of understanding what they're doing. F- frankly, I wish... The FCC did more of that. Um, I hate to say this, but the U.S. is a very strange country. Um, <laughs> we have a we had a president who was um, he, uh, President Trump uh, once told an interviewer, "Do you know that there are 182 countries out there?" And I thought that was a strange observation from the president of the United States. But but you know, there's a joke. I grew up in New York City, which you can probably tell by my accent. And as a New Yorker, you know that there's an East Coast and a West Coast and nothing in between. <laughs> so so the, the U.S. doesn't outreach as much as, as it should. Now, we have an international department in, in, the, uh, in the commission, but I've never felt personally that that knowledge base was carried and inculcated throughout the, comp- uh, the FCC, throughout the commission. I wish we did more of it. And, and part of it, I think, is a U.S. attitude that we're sort of leading the world. That's not always true. And just finally, you mentioned, you know, we've seen the change of administration now. This came in under Obama. The Biden administration has talked about renewing broadband infrastructure. Do you think that's going to have an impact on the the program over the next few years? 
Ah, uh, yes. Um, not not yes in the following sense. Um, commissioners started to learn that knowledge of infrastructure is extremely important. So, so we're trying. There's a duality of principle going on. Increasingly, the uh, regulatory commissions, especially the FCC, are not interested in micromanaging industry. They want a mm. deregulatory environment, but they got to, get, got to maintain knowledge of what's happening. Um, we had a hurricane hit Puerto Rico, and our ability at that point in time to understand that was going on was minimal. Um, with the um, uh, weather disasters we're starting to see, the commission's well aware at this point that you've got to have really empirical knowledge, accurate knowledge of what's happening uh, if we're going to fulfill a role of ensuring that the country's infrastructure remains intact. So I, I think that with these programs going forward, knowledge about performance issues, data issues, uh, hopefully in partnership. I'm a big supporter of working with industry. Um, the, the, the typical way the FCC works, regulatory agencies in the U.S. work, and I can't, can't comment on uh, other countries, is a one-hour meet and greet. A company mm -hmm. comes in with a scheduled one-hour time slot, and they make a pitch. Okay, and when you make a sales pitch, there's a lot of hyperbole thrown in. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities to work more closely with industry. The FCC uses advisory committees, which are a wonderful resource where they set up for a year and they work on very concentrated work uh, way uh, with the FCC on identifying problems, issues, and solutions to problems that the FCC is facing. Um, Samnos was a, another wonderful opportunity. Okay, we sat down on a sort of bi-weekly, tri-weekly basis with industry. And these were their A experts. These, these, these were not um, uh, techs. They, they was basically their top line engineers would come in and they would argue and discuss among themselves problems they were facing, issues they were facing. And we try to listen and come up with a ethical, rational solution to some of the problems. Uh, mm -hmm. But it also gave us a, a much fuller understanding of the engineering issues that that they were facing, the problems in trying to evolve a network, uh, the technical issues that they were dealing with, the potential they saw for improvement. You don't get that in a sales pitch. Mm -hmm. So, so this opportunity to work intensively with industry in a collegial atmosphere. I said we started out in a very contentious environment. By and large, that went away over time. Not that we didn't have arguments, mm -hmm. uh, especially in a competitive. Some company would come up and they would advocate for their peculiar environment, and that would always lead to a, you know a, a long, drawn-out argument. But by and large, it was a collegial environment. People developed a level of trust and understanding, and that carried forward. You know, month after month after month, the program was started in two thousand nine. Um, uh, first report two thousand eleven has continued. Um, that collegiality at working with it, that's the way it should work. Okay. We shouldn't mm -hmm. be adversarial with industry. Uh, we need to protect the consumer. We need to encourage industry. We need to encourage investment. One of the things you learn in this business is that industry has to invest a huge amount of money, a huge amount of money, um, for all the, for all these stories of, you know, they're ripping us off with these prices. Uh, every, um, person we've ever brought in from wall street, who's looked at, at uh, the telecommunications industry has always commented is that the margins are not great. 
Mm-hmm. It's like the oil industry. Yes, you make a lot of money, but because you've invested a lot of money. Uh, Verizon invested $30 billion in their Fios program. Most of that was written down. They weren't able to recover their costs. So uh, we should be encouraging investment where possible. We should be making it easier for people to innovate. Um, we should be open to new business models, uh, especially in the wireless sector. The FCC's done. If you look at the uh, wireless opportunities that were being pushed 10 or 15 years ago versus what the FCC is interested in now, they've gone to different companies. They've gone to different business models. Uh, satellite is being pushed very heavily. Uh, we've come up with all sorts of different wireless um auction schemes. But you need to work with industry to encourage innovation and investment. At the same time, you've got a duality that you've got to look out for the interest of the consumer. If you can balance those, you get out of the way. That's it for part one of this podcast, but make sure to check out the Sam Knows podcast feed for the second part of the show, when I'll be talking to Roxanne Robinson about the changes that have taken place with the Measuring Broadband America program and what's coming in the future.